Hi, it's Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called, According to a World-Famous Doctor, Eating Certain Foods Will Turn Your Heart Disease into a Harmless Paper Tiger That You'll Never Need to Worry About Again. If you think heart disease is just a natural part of aging, don't bet your heart on it. The author of Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn, says it's actually a foodborne illness with a simple cure that even the unhealthiest of people can conquer once and for all. But you won't hear that from the government, and you won't study it in school. In fact, Dr. Esselstyn says that this is the one disappointment he has with modern medicine. It's simply failing its patients, and in this audio, you'll hear all about it. You'll also hear the amazing discovery scientists learned about curing heart disease from the Nazis in World War II, and why you've probably never heard about it before. You'll learn the dark secret your doctor is trying to hide from you about bypasses and stents and what you need to know before you let anyone cut you open. You'll learn exactly what Dr. Esselstyn says in the one and only way doctors today can adequately treat heart disease and stop killing their patients. You'll learn about three foods you'll never want to eat again. You'll learn the ugly truth about the USDA and why Dr. Esselstyn says having them make the food pyramid is like having Al Capone do your taxes. You'll learn the exact steps you can take to regain power over your heart disease today. Dr. Esselstyn says everyone who eats a traditional Western diet has cardiovascular disease right now. And although you may not have a heart attack for 30 years, he says you'll never have a heart attack again if you follow his advice. And in this interview, you'll hear exactly what that advice is. Now let's get going. Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best health-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health issues, send them over to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Dr. Esselstyn, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we are really excited about your book. You know, this country is just in a free-fall crisis, as I'm sure you are well aware of, with heart disease and obesity and all of those conditions. And your family, sounds like, had a lot of heart disease. That is an interesting story. Let me just say that I think that the truth be known that heart disease is nothing more than a toothless paper tiger that need never even exist. And if it does exist, it need never, ever progress. This is a foodborne illness. Yes, as far as my own family is concerned, my dad had his first heart attack at age 43. But I think if we really take our cue from the global perspective, it's fascinating when you begin to look across the various cultures on this planet where heart disease is virtually non-existent. For instance, if you happen to be a heart surgeon and you wanted to set up a practice either in the Papua Highlands in New Guinea, the rural Chinese, Central Africa, or the Tara Chumara Indians in northern Mexico, forget it. You better plan on selling pencils because there's just not going to be any heart disease there. I was never a cardiologist, never a heart surgeon. My primary responsibilities were in surgery of the thyroid and parathyroid, but it was as chairman of our breast cancer task force that I suddenly began to get very, very curious and interested in nutrition because no matter how many women I was operating for, for breast cancer, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. And that led to this global research, which was really quite provocative because you found that in Kenya, Africa, for instance, the incidence of breast cancer was something like 20 or 30 times less than the United States. And in rural 
Japan in the 1950s, breast cancer was practically unheard of. Yet, when the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the second and third generation, still pure Japanese American, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterparts. And perhaps even more compelling was the prostate cancer story. How many men in 1958 in the entire nation of Japan died from cancer of the prostate? 18. And yet by 1978, they're up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will succumb this year in this country. So we had these very provocative differences globally in the cancer, but I felt that my bones would long be dust before I could really get some answers with nutrition and cancer, although in hindsight, I'm not sure that's correct. So my decision was to try to get a cancer through heart disease because it was so apparent that heart disease is not cancer and it is not obligatory in any sense. It's just not a disease of aging. We have so many examples of people who live to be 80, 90, and 100 without even a hint of any kind of vascular disease because they're plant-based. So that was sort of the provocative start of all this. And there was another very intriguing story that occurred, and that was what happened in World War II. It was characteristic of the Axis powers of Germany. When they overran the low countries of Holland and Belgium and they occupied Denmark and Norway, the Germans characteristically would take away the livestock of these countries. That is, they take away their cattle, their sheep, their goats, their pigs, their chickens, their turkeys, so that largely these countries were now eating plant-based during the war years 1939 through 1945. And there is a very interesting scientific paper about Norway during that time when their rates of heart disease and stroke absolutely plummeted during 1939 to 1945 when they were deprived of their meat and dairy. And yet, as soon as there was a cessation of hostilities, and back came the meat, back came the dairy, and zoom, up went the strokes and heart attacks again. Very provocative. And if you look at the results of our young men, for instance, who have succumbed in combat in Vietnam and Korea, 80% of our 20-year-old GIs who died in combat at autopsy, there was evidence of coronary artery disease that could be seen without a microscope. It was not enough yet to cause heart attacks or clinical events. Those still are several decades away. But it was extremely informative that we are doing something in this culture that is creating this epidemic of disease, and we now pretty well absolutely know the answer. And the exciting thing is that there's something that every person can do to prevent this from happening. Good health is not accidental. It's so empowering when people begin to understand it. You mentioned that your dream is to see the eradication of heart disease. Is that correct? Well, if we can see it in other cultures, I think that we can do it eventually in this country as well. I mean, for instance, look what happened, how educated people became with smoking. I know that when I finished all my training, if we ever had guests over at the house, and this was in the early 1960s, it would be inhospitable if you didn't put out ashtrays and bring in cigarettes for these guests to smoke while they were in your house. Nobody would ever dream of that today. There has been a tremendous, tremendous education program where people really now fully understand the tremendous dangers of cigarette smoking. And now we have to start all over again and do the same thing with certain foods. And if I've got a moment, I'd like to explain how that works. Let's talk about where there is agreement. All experts would agree that where this disease has its inception, where it starts, is at this remarkable, delicate, one-layer-thick lining of our blood vessels. It has a name the endothelial cells. This is a remarkable lining because the endothelial cells, when they're working correctly, make lots and lots of this wonderful molecule that we call nitric oxide, and it has amazing functions. Nitric oxide is what keeps our blood flowing smoothly. 
Nitric oxide is what allows our arteries to widen and dilate whenever we exercise or go upstairs to deliver more blood to the muscles that need that blood. Nitric oxide prevents inflammation from developing in the wall of the arteries, and nitric oxide prevents the formation of blockages or plaques. So you might be saying, well, now, wait a minute. With that wonderful mechanism, why does anybody ever have vascular disease? Well, in the last 15 and 18 years, through research, it is very clear now exactly what are the foods that imperil, impoverish, compromise, and injure those delicate endothelial cells and their capacity to make that wonderful nitric oxide. What happens? Every time certain processed oils pass your lips, you imperil and injure your endothelial cells. Yes, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, soybean oil, all those processed oils, and dairy. Yes, milk, cream, butter, ice cream, cheese, yogurt, and anything with a mother, anything with a face, meat, fish, and chicken. Now, that seems like it's a pretty <laughs> significant amount, but those are exactly the foods in our research patients, our patients who were ravaged by heart disease. They had failed their first or second angioplasty or stent. They had failed their first or second bypass. They were too sick for these procedures or they had refused. A number were told they wouldn't live out the year. And yet, when you counsel these patients and share with them what's going on with this delicate endothelium and they get it and they do it right, the endothelium begins to sparkle again, makes enough nitric oxide so that not only does it halt the disease, but it even begins to regress it. This is not cancer. This is purely a benign foodborne illness. And my disappointment with the medical profession itself right now is the fact that perhaps this is one of the first times since the days of Hippocrates where we really haven't been candid with patients what is the causation of their illness. Many physicians just simply throw up their hands and say that patients won't make these changes. Well, we have found that absolutely not to be the case. Patients rejoice when they have a full understanding and comprehension of what it is that is causing their illness. And they're so empowered to think that they themselves, not the cardiologist or the drugs or the procedures, they themselves can be the locus of control for turning this around. There's no question that stents and bypass are absolutely life-saving when someone is in the middle of a heart attack. But that's a very small minority of the patients. The majority of patients in this country, there are 1.2 million stents per year. That means over the last 10 years, there have been what? There have been over 10 million stents. Now, stents are reasonably safe, but there are 1% of people will die when getting a stent. Well, 1% of 1.2 million is 12,000 people will die this year while getting their stent. 4% will get a heart attack. So 4% of 1.2 million, that's now 48,000 people who will sustain a heart attack while getting their stent. If you take it out over 10 years, that's 120,000 people who will die getting their stent. It's a little bit more of a problem with the bypass, but they don't do as many, 500,000. Well, a stent is when the physician will pass a catheter, usually through an artery in the groin, which will thread its way up just to the heart, and then actually the catheter will go into the artery that goes to the heart, right where the plaque is. And then at the tip of the catheter, a little balloon will first be blown up, which will try to press out and widen the plaque space so that the opening in the artery is restored. And then they next put in a little wire cage called a stent to try to hold the artery open. But the problem is that most patients will have literally hundreds of these plaques, and the ones that they treat 
are the ones that are usually blocking the artery by over 75%. But those aren't the ones that are most likely to cause a heart attack. The elephant in the room whenever you're talking about stents is that it appears that when you study thousands of people who have had them, there is no prolongation of life with stents, and it does not protect against future new heart attacks. Now, it might give you some relief of angina or chest pain or discomfort, but you can achieve the same thing with medical therapy, although it may take a little longer and safer. If it doesn't work, why are we doing this? It's because very few physicians have any really aptitude with nutrition. How much nutrition do people get or physicians get in medical school? Maybe 45 minutes at the most. And sadly, even the leadership of physicians who are in cardiology have very little faith in this approach because they've never done it. If they are in a situation where they have had experience with the fact that significant lifestyle change can immediately begin to arrest and relieve pain, they can become the disciples. But sadly also, there's very little monetary reward and insurance doesn't pay for this kind of counseling. So there are still some significant hurdles that we have to go through to make this happen generally throughout the country. But I think the results are provocative and it's going to happen. We've had many patients that we've counseled who have had the courage and the discipline to say, look, if you do find some of those blockages, unless mine is absolutely immediately life-threatening or if I'm in the middle of a heart attack, I don't want that stent. I want to think about a significant lifestyle change, and if I don't seem to get better with that, then maybe in the next three to six months, I can reconsider about whether I'll have that stent. I'm Chris Costello, reporting from Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. So in many cases, they have some time. Oh, yeah. There are many, many studies that show an excellent one, especially from Dr. William Bowden from Buffalo, was able to organize a wonderful national study clearly showing that even just plain old intensive medical therapy with some modest dietary changes and intensive medication was equally competitive with a stent without having the risk of the stent. Bypass is, is a pretty serious procedure, and I think if it's in the middle of a heart attack or it's otherwise a life-threatening situation, it can be life-saving. But again, most of these are simply done electively. And these patients really first deserve to have at least a three to six month trial of aggressive lifestyle change. And I'm totally opposed to the idea that patients won't do this. It's not a question that they won't do it. When you talk about advice, is it that the advice was bad or how the advice was given? I used to have a surgical mentor who had a wonderful saying. He said, inappropriate application of the method is no excuse for its abandonment. Why not just simply tell the patients, look, this is a benign foodborne illness. If you're willing to make these significant changes, you can very, very safely end the progression of this disease. Right, Dr. Esselstyn. In effect, that's what you did with your 20-year nutritional study, right? Yes, we're expanding that now to several hundred more, and it's been nothing but very exciting and very rewarding. And I can say that it appears that every patient who is fully compliant seems to be able to put an end to this illness and often achieve significant regression of disease. Well, we started because I wanted to see if we couldn't do this with a small group of patients. I still had a very full schedule as a surgeon, so the most that I could handle at the outset were these 24 patients who were significantly ill with heart disease that I mentioned earlier. And by seeing them every two weeks, going over every morsel they ate, checking their weight, their blood pressure, and their full cholesterol every two weeks, we really got to know each other pretty well. At the end of five years, I stretched it out to every four weeks. And then at the end of a decade, they were obviously by this time pretty well on autopilot. Now, that's the way we did it with the original group. And obviously, if there are any physicians listening, they're going to throw up their hands and say, how could I ever have the time to see a patient every two weeks? 
but this was under a research setting, and I was able to do that. However, since then, realistically, since so many of our patients seem to come from out of state, we have developed a very intensive single five-hour counseling session where we have them in my translation of medical jargon into terms that they can fully grasp and understand. They have a full understanding of exactly how their eating has caused their disease and precisely what it is that they can do to not only halt this disease, but begin to reverse it. So they are sent off with all this information. And we've done this now for over a decade, and it appears extremely effective, very powerful, and close to 90% of patients are compliant and do get this and understand it, and really rejoice knowing that they themselves are the locus of control for this illness. The main point that I want to make here is they're willing to do this when you as a physician are willing to spend this time. Now, there's very few physicians who can take time out in the middle of the day, suddenly counsel a patient for five hours. That would be pretty unrealistic. So what has to happen is that the physicians have to recognize that this is an avenue whereby this disease can be really taken care of by this type of counseling. And they have to have somebody who's designated to do this, whether it's a nurse practitioner or it may very well be a physician themselves who has the passion, the skill set, and the ability for behavioral modification who wants to do this. That's the way it really can become effective. I happen to enjoy it greatly in counseling these patients because it's so effective and it's so prompt and it can be persistent and enduring. Our five-hour counseling will have to be the most significant interaction and exchange that a patient has ever had with their caregiver. Very few physicians ever spend five hours with their patient. But the fact that it is that long in duration and that intense, they suddenly grasp and understand that this is what works. And if you contrast that with spending five hours when your patient's asleep, taking a vein from their leg and putting it on their heart, when most of those, sadly, within a several years, they fail. And that's just not what we're interested in. You know, a lot of the people are willing to do this and make these changes. What about the ones that aren't? You know, it's interesting. When I just have looked up over 133 patients, and there were about 14 that didn't quite get it. Some just, I think, have not really had the full grasp of the importance of the endothelium. And many of them, when you call them, you said, you know, now that you've reminded me again, golly, I really should have been doing this. Fortunately, it's the minority who really feel that way. And many of those patients on a second or third phone call will turn it around. But over 90%, as I mentioned, when you think about it this way, how many men would, after hearing all this counseling, would say, well, Dr. Esselstyn, that's really very interesting, but I really have enjoyed developing ED. I think I'll continue to destroy my endothelium. I really liked the tour that I had when I was in the hospital with my bypass operation. I got along very well with the nurses. Maybe I'm looking forward to a second one. Come on. Very few people will ever do that. You know, we are really in desperate need as a nation of a seismic revolution in health. And what becomes very clear is that that seismic revolution in health is never going to come about from a pill. It's never going to come about from a procedure or an operation. The seismic revolution in health is going to come about when we are willing to take the time and grit and persistence to show the people really what is the healthiest lifestyle that they can lead so they don't have to have these common chronic killing diseases. For instance, if I counsel somebody who is 250 pounds who's had a heart attack, and they just get it. They also happen to be overweight, they're hypertensive with high blood pressure, and they've got diabetes. Suddenly, at the end of seven or eight months, they may have lost 70 or 80 pounds. They are now down to 185. They're no longer obese. They are absolutely heart attack proof. They're not going to have a stroke. 
Their hypertension has gone away. Their diabetes has gone away. And their risk for the common Western cancers has gone away. And the whole thing goes on and on and on. And it's really quite impressive how strong the body can be against these common chronic killing diseases when we are willing to make these significant changes. Let's go over it again for people that are interested that want to change their health and change their life. What are the foods that they just have to avoid? And I want to ask you a little bit about why do they have to avoid these so much? For more interviews on health, mind, body, and spirit, go to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. What gives us this vascular disease is the injury to that delicate single layer of cells that lines all of our blood vessels, the endothelial cells, and they become injured by certain foods that we eat, processed oils, dairy, meat, fish, and chicken. What do we want people to eat? All those wonderful grains that are whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole grains for your cereal, bread, pasta, bagels, rolls, all the 101 different types of legumes or beans of great variety of red, yellow, and especially green leafy vegetables and fruit. Not fruit juice, fruit. There are many books. We have about 150 recipes in ours. Plus, we also mention several other kindred spirits that have recipes that the same thing can happen. And you end up with really hundreds and hundreds of recipes that are absolutely delicious. What you really are doing is you're exchanging one pile of delicious food that is destroying you for another pile of delicious food that is enhancing your health. Well, I have a chapter in my book entitled Moderation Kills. In other words, let's suppose that you're somebody who's had a heart attack. All right, you get over it fine and you're doing all right. But obviously the thing that families and the patients who've had a heart attack fear more than anything else, when is the other shoe going to fall? When is he going to have the next heart attack? Well, we like to set it up so that they can understand that they never have to have another heart attack. In other words, when you eat this way, you strengthen the cap, C-A-P, the cap over the plaque, because it's when the cap over the plaque in the artery ruptures that you get these heart attacks. So that when you eat plant-based like this, you strengthen the cap so it cannot rupture. And when you make yourself plaque rupture-proof, you've now made yourself heart attack-proof. So if you're doing this in moderation, you might be delaying the time at which you'll have your heart attack, but it doesn't protect you from it. Or you might be older when you have your heart attack rather than younger. Or you might have a smaller heart attack rather than a larger one. Why would you want to eat any foods that imperil you? Why would you want to have a small amount of strychnine? I'll just think I'll have a modest dose of arsenic. Dr. Esselstyn, there's a tremendous amount of talk about the Mediterranean diet. I want to specifically ask you about olive oil. All the doctors say, you know, eat olive oil, it's good for you. And then also many, many doctors are prescribing omega-3s and fish oil on a regular basis. What about that? Well, it does take this one at a time. First, remind me again that you want to have me talk about the omega-3s, but let's first of all talk about the Mediterranean diet and the olive oil. First of all, any physicians who are prescribing olive oil simply don't know the literature. There are numerous studies that show how literally olive oil absolutely pummels, injures, compromises the ability of the endothelial cell to make nitric oxide. That is absolute scientific fact. But somehow there's this tradition of olive oil that makes it seem sort of sacred, but it's not. It is injurious. Let's just take a look at some of the Mediterranean diet hype and where that perhaps got going. If you were to go back 40 or 50 years ago, and let's take the classic Mediterranean diet, which would be the island of Crete. All these people were using a great deal of their time with physical activity, working the fields, working their gardens. The physical activity was high, and they were eating really mostly out of their gardens and vegetables. 
sure, they did have a little bit of olive oil. And they had all these vegetables to sort of counteract the bad effects of the olive oil. And there was really not very much in the way of heart disease. Now, today, of course, you can't go to Crete and see anything but heart disease because they're all loaded with things that we from America have exported to them, such as many of those various fast food franchises. So there was another study about 11 years ago that was the Lyon diet study in Lyon, France, where they compared those who had had a heart attack. There were 305 people eating in one group the standard American Heart Association Step 1 diet, and in the other group, they were eating a so-called Mediterranean diet, lean meats, low-fat dairy, whole grains, legumes, vegetables, and fruit, and some oil. And lo and behold, the group on the Mediterranean diet was doing so much better than the American Heart Association Step 1 diet that they stopped the study. They didn't want anybody to have to eat that horrible American Heart Association diet any longer. And it is such a bad diet that you could put any diet up against the American Heart Association diet, step one, and it would look wonderful. So what everybody didn't do was see what happened to those who were on the Mediterranean diet. At the end of four years, 25% of those on the Mediterranean diet had either died or had another significant cardiac event, which is not a rest and reversal of disease. So with a Mediterranean diet, you can slow the rate of disease progression, but that's not really what our goal should be. Our goal should be to annihilate disease. And I think there are a lot of physicians who use that as some sort of a compromise. But I don't do that because I don't like 10% or 15 or 20% of my people to continue to come down with disease progression. I want them to have the ability to stop this disease. And so I want them not to have anything past their lips that is going to further imperil or further injure their endothelium, which has already been so ravaged that they've lost so much of their nitric oxide that they now have cardiovascular disease. We've seen it reverse in the arteries going to the brain, the carotid artery. We've seen erectile dysfunction reverse. We've seen the disease in the legs reverse. And obviously, from the book, you can see the angiograms of the heart showing how that reversed. And for people that aren't overtly suffering from heart disease, is this still a good way to go? Well, let's talk about that. When you say they are not overtly suffering from heart disease, let's just see if that's truly the case. For instance, if you will look at a more recent autopsy study, let's say 40 or 50 years after the group from Vietnam and Korea that I mentioned earlier, some people have felt that maybe that was due to the stress of combat that was causing this cardiovascular disease in these young men. So there is a more recent study from 1999 of thousands who have died of accidents, homicides, and suicides between the ages of 17 and 38. And lo and behold, without a microscope again, the disease is now ubiquitous. In other words, everybody who's eating the traditional Western diet has cardiovascular disease. So if you're asking me, should people who don't have cardiovascular disease be eating this way? My answer is, look, if they have been eating the traditional Western diet, they already have cardiovascular disease. Not enough to have a clinical event yet, but why wait to have your clinical event when you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, or beyond? Why not just eat in a way that you don't have to have that event? It also is much less likely that you'll have dementia and osteoporosis and the common Western cancers, not to mention, of course, diabetes and high blood pressure that we've already talked about. The omega-3s are two essential fatty acids we have to have. We have to have omega-6, which you don't even think about that. You're going to get all the omega-6 you need. The question people have raised is about whether you're going to get enough omega-3. And sure, you can take fish oil and get omega-3, but now you're taking oil and you're taking something that is processed. You're taking something that increases your likelihood of bleeding. You're taking something that is an immune suppressant. 
A recent Harvard study shows that those who are on fish and fish oil are more prone to developing diabetes. So why not get the omega-3 like the fish gets it? The fish gets it by eating what? Plankton. I don't want you to dive deep in the ocean and try to get plankton, but I do want you to get your omega-3s through eating copiously green leafy vegetables. They are loaded. And also, if you don't think you're getting quite enough there, you can get a couple of tablespoons of flaxseed meal on your cereal, which is another story. But when people really eat this way, there is recent data to suggest they become very, very, very efficient at making their own omega-3. So why are so many doctors prescribing omega-3s? It's an easy way to do it. You just write a prescription. You don't have to go through the detailed studying that I'm sharing with you now. And Or they probably don't feel that the people are going to be eating it. And also, it's a knee-jerk thing that physicians do. If physicians had learned in great depth in medical school that coronary or heart disease and vascular disease is something that need never, ever exist, and if somebody had exhaustively explained to them that this is the causation of this illness and this can be stopped. There are studies that clearly show this disease never occur. Why would they ever go out and just start writing these prescriptions for pills and drugs and procedures? Because they don't know this. They have no confidence in it because they've never utilized it and they're not familiar with the medical literature where this has been clearly defined. There are several institutions that would love to see what I'm sharing with you fail. And one is the government. Let's look at the USDA. The United States Department of Agriculture is the handmaiden of the food industry. Dairy, meat, pork, poultry, egg, they have a stranglehold on the USDA. So that every five years when the USDA makes your food pyramid, it is laden with foods that guarantee that millions of Americans will perish. Uh, having the USDA make your food pyramid is like having Al Capone do your taxes. The other group that would probably not be too interested to see this epidemic resolved is the stent industry. Now, there's a $5 billion yearly industry. You think they're interested in losing that industry? And what about the statin drug industry? That's about a $25 billion industry. The statin makers interested in seeing this go away. And then sadly, even in my own profession, those who are earning a living during bypass and stents, are they clamoring for fewer and fewer patients? There's a tremendous amount of economic conflict. And right now, if you want to look at a really the big picture that Americans do to really help this country, is the thing that is pulling us as a nation into debtor's prison faster than anything else are the entitlement. The entitlement that is doing this faster than anything else is Medicare. What is 45% of Medicare's cost? Cardiology. You fix it by the metric of what we call science. That is to say we've just got to be able to show people that this is a very powerful, very effective, sustained way of treating this foodborne illness by showing them how to take away the foods that are injuring them and show them the foods that can restore their health. It's going to take a little while, but it's going to come. Because we as a nation, we just don't have the wealth to sustain this kind of ridiculous expenditure on a whole parade of therapeutics, which has such high mortality, such high morbidity, such enormous expense, and it doesn't treat the illness. I mean, people who have heart disease have their first or second stent or bypass progressive disability, eventually end up with congestive heart failure and they die of disease, which was a totally benign foodborne illness. I wrote an editorial that was published about three weeks ago in the American Journal of Cardiology, and it was entitled, Is the Present Therapy for Coronary Artery Disease the Radical Mastectomy of the 21st Century? The radical mastectomy, for those who don't know, was the standardized surgical era of the previous century. And it wasn't until there were courageous physicians who really came down to challenging it and found that there was equal benefit to women with much lesser procedures, procedures which were less disfiguring 
and less mutilating and less painful. And the same thing is so true of heart disease, that you don't have to have these procedures which carry this mortality and this sickness and morbidity, nor do you have to depend on all these hosts of thousands of dollars worth of medication. It's just crazy. Part of this message today, hopefully, is that long before you begin to have your health crumble, why not make these changes so it never has that happen? For more interviews with the world's top health and medical experts, go to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. One of the things we hear fairly frequently is people that have tried being vegetarians, and for one reason or another, it hasn't worked for them. They don't feel good, that kind of thing. How do you address that? That's interesting. First of all, I think that it's important that they have exposure to hopefully something either like our book or the counseling effort where patients do so much better when they have all the facts and all the information. Because the reason that we have about a 90% compliance at the present time, I'm totally convinced because of the amount of information that these patients receive and grasp. The patients who do this suddenly when they see themselves losing weight, losing their diabetes, losing their high blood pressure, and feeling better, and seeing their disease disappear as their pain goes away, as the erectile dysfunction goes away, the pain in their joints goes away. There's so much that they suddenly see that really makes them realize that this is the way to go. Now, there are tremendous blocks. It takes quite a bit of will on the patient's part because practically every setting that we find themselves in, there will be foods served that are just the absolute opposite of what I've been talking about. You go to a restaurant, you're going to have to struggle. There are ways to do it. You go to somebody's house for dinner, it's going to be a little bit awkward. The challenge is significant because when you convert this way and you find that it's a challenge at restaurants, it's a challenge at people's houses, you just have to sort of work your way around that. I mean, you can do it at restaurants. If it's local, you can make a way that you can call the chef beforehand, and usually chefs absolutely adore being challenged to do this kind of thing. If you go there at the last minute and try to ask a waitress, then it really is challenging. You have to sort of look among different possibilities, get some vegetables from one selection, get a baked potato from another, have a salad. Hopefully you'll bring your own salad dressing, which many of the patients do. You can have some food for dessert. When you go out to a restaurant to have a meal, you go out for several reasons. One, you don't have to do the dishes. Two, you go out for the ambiance. Three, you go out for the charming companionship. But remember, you do not go out for dinner at a restaurant to destroy your few remaining healthy endothelial cells. Be a little creative and think ahead, but we now have hundreds and hundreds of patients who have successfully done this, and they just absolutely are stymied by why their physicians didn't offer this to them before. Can you imagine somebody who's had their second, third, or fourth stent, and finally they discovered how simple this is, how absolutely, really thankful and delighted they are that they don't have that to look forward to anymore, or the sort of Damocles hanging over their head wondering when they're going to have another heart attack. Now, what about the people that are worried about getting enough protein if they cut out the dairy? I think the best way to answer that is the answer that my good friend, probably America's premier nutritionist, Colin Campbell from Cornell, who is the author of the best-selling book, The China Study. And Colin will answer a question like that when people say, how can you possibly get enough protein? He'll say, well, if you're getting enough calories to sustain you, you're getting enough protein. In other words, protein has gotten to be so, so absolutely out of whack in this country where everybody worships it as some sort of a sacred entity. And I think Cowan's work, if you ever read Chapter 3 of the China Study, which is wonderful, there is some very, very, very provocative evidence to clearly show that animal protein can accelerate the cancer growth. And you can turn it 
Chapter 3, Colin Campbell, The China Study. Very powerful. Now, are you going to get enough protein on this plant-based diet? Well, let's just look at it. How much protein is in a hamburger? 37%. How much protein is in spinach? 57%. And you go down the whole list. When you're eating beans and these green leafy vegetables and grains, you're getting so much protein that your body is never going to be in any way deficient. And it is plant-based protein which doesn't turn on these cancers. That was what was so striking about Professor Campbell's work in Chapter 3 of the China study. These same experiments where you turned on the cancer with animal protein, if you did the same thing with plant-based protein, it didn't happen. Very powerful. Dr. Esselstyn, if people want to find out more information, can you direct them to a website? You can try our website, which is heartattackproof.com. If I were to paraphrase the late John F. Kennedy, I'd say, ask not what your country can do for your health, ask what you can do for your health. Good health is not accidental. Increasingly, we recognize that we ourselves are responsible for our health. It's amazing what people can do to improve their lives and prevent themselves from the nightmares that they see around them. So we hope everybody runs out and gets a copy of Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, the Revolutionary Scientifically Proven Nutrition-Based Cure by Caldwell B. Esselstyn. Dr. Esselstyn, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.